Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome everyone to this week's Hoon. I am Bernard Hickey with co-host Peter Bale and we're both in the same place in Auckland. But we I'm are in the same place in Auckland. What's the weather like in where you are Bernard? I can see the rain coming in over the harbour and I suspect you can probably just see a little bit of rain coming in at the other end of my house can you? That's right so sweeping in from mm. the west it'll mm. go over my head and land on yours at some mm. point. Yeah no it's um it's good to be in Auckland, uh, and I'll be back again. Well, it's got a bit of Wellington weather you brought with us as well. Oh, yeah, no, as well. yeah, but only only a tenth of the um, kilometres per hour, and none of the earthquakes. There was a very heavy earthquake last night at um, three o'clock in the morning. And did the earth move for you? Uh, not for me. Oh, you no. were here. That's right. I was here, but I got a text message um, from a uh, from a from the lovely Lynn. Yes. saying that there had been an earthquake. So um, I'm looking forward to going back to Auckland. Peter, it's been uh, quite a week um, domestically, starting off with uh, the dramas here in Auckland, actually, with Wayne Brown, um, the man that others have described as a stick of dynamite looking for a match. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he, he does also give off a tremendous boomer energy. You know, mm. I'm, I'm a big fan of Chloe Swarbrick and I just would love to hear, in fact, we should have her on to talk about Wayne. And I, and I was discussing this with a journalist today, because as you know, Wayne has decided not to do any interviews. And I don't think that does him any harm with his constituency. Mm. And I've noticed, for example, that the producer of Tover O'Brien's radio show is running a counter, you know, for each day that um, Wayne Brown doesn't, doesn't, doesn't turn up. But I have a feeling that Wayne Brown is, is, knows exactly what he's doing and, and, and that it will work. But yeah, I, well, he, I did, he, what, what I should, sorry, what I did suggest also to this journalist from a um, major leading New Zealand website, which shall, shall remain nameless, but has, uh, I think, um, five letters, and was to possibly do what Channel 4 did once to Boris Johnson for a conversation about uh, climate change, is that they had an ice sculpture of Boris <laughs> after he, and, and empty chaired him, but used an ice sculpture um, with him melting. And I, I think doing something like that with Wayne Brown, interviewing an empty chair would be a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. as the ice melts. Because something like hot, that. I mean, I don't, I don't mean an ice sculpture particularly for him, because he's, I don't think he's a climate change denier so far. Maybe a chainsaw sculpture. Yep, 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 that's yep, the, but yeah, or a or a um or a sort of uh, something made out of black sand from Pihar because that seems ooh, to be where he spends ooh, yeah. most of his um you know to, I thought it was interesting you you posted that thing that he doesn't intend to work uh, more than nine to three which I actually perfectly understand. Also, he is three hundred years old. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I can't really uh, uh, complain because I'm one of these. Uh, Fifty-five-year-old men who needs a nap in the middle of the day. So um, that actually makes it's me very, more productive. It's a very desirable way to be. Now, look here. I just, I mean, you you wrote about the uh, local elections, and didn't didn't we find that the uh, actual final results of the election made this idea of a kind of move away from Labour and certainly uh, away from Jacinda was not entirely validated by the final results, was it? Well, uh, certainly in Wellington, um, there was a green left mm. win. Although, interestingly, the one mayoral candidate that Jacinda did endorse got absolutely slaughtered. Mm. So even in Wellington, um, the prime minister is a bit on the nose. Uh, and in Auckland, obviously, at the last minute, there's been some swing of late votes, which mean there are a couple of um, left candidates who got in on the council. But it's still a, a slim majority centre-right council. Mm -hmm. Uh, and in the rest of the country, it pretty was pretty much a you know a centre right swing, a, a big wash in of people who were pro car, 
anti-cycling lane and uh, oh, they're, they're, they're one and the same yeah <laughs> and uh and definitely not keen on the centralizing controlling hand of wellington and anti-co-governance anti as well i suspect exactly so, three waters yeah. um is not a popular thing but yes as gary points out not in christchurch the home of new zealand liberalism yeah well phil major um was elected mayor certainly on the center right against uh the cycleway i understand um and uh Thank you, Gary, for for being on being on there. Uh, a, a quick um, uh, a, a quick uh, um, note that that Gary was on the a campaign team for David. David meets the uh, the other candidate. Oh, was um, he? Yeah, Christ, we're so, going to get we're going to get Hooten on here soon because Oh yeah, I, I mean, I'm, get him on. I'm, I'm surprised that um, Wayne Jones does Wayne Brown doesn't seem to have um, Heather Duplessis Allen on his team. He's got everybody else from the Herald on. Yeah, well, you know, it's a very popular um, uh, view that News Talk ZB and the NZ Herald have, which is a sort of centre-righty view, mm. and um, seems to work for them. And uh, it's certainly centre-righty boomer, ill-informed boomer view. Yeah, <laughs> Ferrari-driving um, cyclist uh, bumping um, team. Yeah, I'm, I'm being a bit rude here, but essentially. Uh, it was pretty much a wipeout, apart from Wellington, uh, of the Labour-backed stuff. We've yet to see a reaction from the Prime Minister that um, they've listened and they're going to change. The initial reaction on the Monday was, to be frank, laughable, where she said that um, this wasn't uh, any sort of, you know, uh, rejection no, of the Labour government. Yeah. No, this was just local stuff happening and there's nothing much that uh, we should all just move along now which is frankly laughable. And uh, certainly when several of the policies that Labour and the government, and to be fair on densification and national, hmm. uh, were- Well, they're, were, gonna, they're gonna be doing a reverse ferret on, on densification, well, I suspect, Bernard. I did ask Nicola Willis about the reverse ferret on the densification thing, and she was cautious. Um, it's really in her bones to push for that. Um, she's one of the- pro-supply brigade with a national mm -hmm. who would like to see just lots and lots of houses built. And they can't really have it both ways. It can't just be sprawl on the edge of town, gear up and uh, increase the value of the land, uh, which makes a whole bunch of national backers happy. But you have to do it in the centre of town too. And that's going to make some of the national homeowners there mm -hmm. unhappy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll Not see how long Bay, it though, but, but, Because it's all heritage places. You know, we, well, we can't great, possibly get rid of our, our uh, multi-million dollar uh, clifftop homes. You know? No, the great thing about Hearn Bay and Ponsonby and Mount Eden is that even in what was a sort of a centre-lefty council before the election, mm. They somehow managed to um, let uh, someone in there to uh, scribble over the map to carve off Hearn Bay, uh, Mount Eden, Ponsonby on the grounds that these are character homes. Yes, as opposed to the characterless neighbourhoods of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, I mean, they, they could have done it by looking for the leafy suburbs and saying, well, the leafy suburbs are the ones that can't be uh, densified. And um, it's a joke because... Just about all of the villas left in Mount Eden, Ponsonby, Hearn Bay uh, have been uh, 
renovated to the within an inch of their lives. There's probably one stick of wood that was actually originally mm. in there from mm. 1898 or whatever. And uh, that's going to be an interesting question. For it is. I, and, and, you know, it's, you could probably fit quite a couple, you know, you could probably fit a helicopter pad on top of a three-story house, three, you know, three-story new building, which, you know, but maybe you'd have one per, one per floor. And maybe that's the only way we'll get mm. around in future mm. in Auckland because... This week, another piece of bad news on the railway front with the Western Line oh. going out. Mm. For those people who do go on trains, I know that's not your thing, Peter, but certainly... Oh, um, I love trains. I absolutely love trains. And I just, I want some decent ones. And I, you know, when I, I think I told you when I was up at Alan Gibbs, Gibbs Farm the other day, I was thinking, looking at all those gorgeous sculptures and thinking that it was him to blame, really, for leaving, for leaving Kiwi Rail as a kind of rusty wreck of its former self. Yes. You know, and I might like his, I mean, if only, if only he'd... Spent it on some rails rather than a huge Richard Serra sculpture. No. Yeah, no, uh, him and um, Michael Fay, who mm. are living, uh, he lives on an island in the Hauraki Gulf and basically has to be very careful about when he comes into town not to get lynched. Um, and uh, yeah, no, they they bear a lot of responsibility for the, I mean, not the only ones, um, essentially an entire generation mm. of voters decided, hey, let's not invest in infrastructure. But I think we can blame Roger Douglas for it, though, can't we? Can't we blame him for most things now? In Actually, what we um, can't blame on Muldoon, we blame on Roger Douglas. Well, he was gone by 1989. I mean, that's 33 years ago. And actually, a lot of the non-investment has happened in the last 10 to 20 years. And also, the massive increase in migration that happened in the last 20 years. I, I've been doing the numbers for the last couple of days, and I've got a magnum opus coming out tonight on migration and population. Oh, good. Which I hope everyone uh, enjoys. Uh, essentially, it happened after... Coming to Auckland on Wednesday and appearing um, at an event that Michael Wood had to announce some changes on migration. Mm. And so I got a chance to ask him some questions afterwards about oh, good. Uh, the plans. And essentially, the government this week did another U-turn, rowing back on this idea of tightening migration settings. Basically, they can see the screaming from uh, businesses for more workers to come in huge demand for you know filling all these spots. I mean, just about every cafe, restaurant, um, hotel, hospital room, it's got big signs on the door saying, please work for us. And by the way, we're on short hours at the moment because we don't have enough staff. And so the government's responded. They realised that not only do they have a, a problem with stuff not being done, but also inflation. So a lot of businesses mm. are saying, you know, I'm having to increase the wages at cr to crazy levels. This is going to make inflation worse. It's going to create a wage price spiral. And so you need to let me bring in the foreign migrants. Well, over the last four months, Michael Wood, who took over from Chris Farfoy, has been progressively relaxing various rules around short-term temporary migration. So there's been an extra yeah. several thousand RSE, you know, registered seasonal employer workers come in from the Pacific. Uh, there's been a relaxation of the rules about medium wages in terms of exemptions for some industries going out for another year or so. And then this week, um, the government reopened the skilled migrant category for residency visas and also the parent category for residency visas, which has been closed since 2016, which uh, essentially means that people who come here and get residency can apply to bring in their parents. Mm. And this was shut down in 2016 when the national government at the time realised that um, they were letting in an awful lot of people on temporary work visas. Many of them were getting full residency visas and uh, suddenly they were going to have a, 
a double whammy, if you like. It's like a second wave of migration yeah. that comes does it, in. Does that, did, did Wood give you, I mean, I, th I guess this is just sort of too obvious, but it, it, for, for a question for someone about you who's been here so long to ask, but did you talk to Wood about the political pressure on Labour, particularly from the Maori caucus and other, other Labour groups against immigration? Uh, we asked him the questions and, you know, he came back with that. It was a balance between the needs of businesses for workers and the needs of mm. workers to not have competition. Um, he's a very clever, adept, hardworking politician. I have to give him credit for turning up in front of uh, about 300 pretty grumpy uh, local community leaders in Mount Albert, mm -hmm. mostly from the Indian community, who had oh, really? some interesting stories to tell him about people stranded in India who couldn't get back for years People, of course, who'd missed weddings and funerals, um, people who was, who'd got residency but happened to be back in uh, India when COVID hit and um, their residency Went was expired. Interesting. And, and so there's, you know, he and he answered the questions. He stood up. You've got to give him credit for, for being um, out there in front of people. Uh, however, uh, the problem now, because as well as uh, opening up the skilled migration settings, and, and the parent visas, he's also removed the planning range for migration for New Zealand. So for the last 20 years, we've essentially had this bipartisan rule, which is that we would let in about 50,000 people and give them residency mm. every year. And that was how they set the point system for, for migrants. Well, this week, the government removed that. So there now is no actual cap on migration. And one of the risks here is that yet again, we're going to have a government desperate to get elected, turn the wick up on migration without spending the money on infrastructure, which simply plows in a whole bunch of people into a, a, a market where probably in the next two or three years, at some point, interest rates are going to go down. Yeah. We haven't still haven't built enough houses uh, and bang, up goes house prices again. Interesting. Speaking, actually... of, speaking of intensification in Hearn Bay, there's, there's Rodney. <laughs> good to see you we've got Rodney Jones on everyone who is um very graciously uh, agreed to join us to talk about he's um, the Michael he's the Michael Baker of economics yeah no this is this is quite uh, true um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that's quite the compliment I'm looking for <laughs> Rodney, it's great to see you it's, Bernard, Bernard's doing uh, this from from my spare room, and you know you, you could probably just. I think I know where you are, so you could probably just about walk walk over as yourself. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, um, Rodney is the Renaissance man, economist of uh, oh. of New Zealand. Um, uh, lovely to have you on to talk about the shenanigans going on in global financial markets this week. What did you make of what the Bank of England was up to? Oh, look, but they they've ended up in an impossible situation. I was thinking about this, you know, Liz Truss won the conservative election which is with a, a lower margin than wayne brown did in auckland mm. Twenty-one thousand. <laughs> and, and with that and you think about kind of the principle in, in a democracy of the party electing the prime minister during a sitting prime minister you know it doesn't work hague's model is a mm. is a mess it's actually something to think about for our our party's the Labour Party. I mean, would they do that? Do yes. You know? It's something that's really not appropriate. So we've ended up in this complete shambles. And so the Bank of England is scrambling as to what do you do? You know, you've got very high inflation. You've got an economy stumbling into recession. And you've got a government that's kind of dancing to the, to the loony tunes. And, and what I'm trying to work out is, um, will the Bank of England carry through with its threat or promise 
to turn off the tap tonight and hope that everything works out because, you know, they had to turn the tap on uh, a couple of weeks ago because the defined benefit pension industry, which was apparently about to just implode because mm. they had all taken out these liability-driven investment um, hedges against big moves and in interest rates. Is there a risk here that they they uh, their reputation is again damaged because they have to go back on their promise not to intervene again? So yeah, that's that's where the shambles comes comes in. And you know, I'm in the independent research business, and Andrew Bailey introduced some kind of bizarre changes a few years ago. So I've never been an Andrew Bailey fan, <laughs> um, and I think I always suspected he was out of his depth. Mm. As, as a governor, particularly, you know, compared to a Mervyn King, and even Mervyn King struggled. I mean, the UK is a complex place. Or oh, steady Eddie. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so he, he's probably been promoted beyond his ability. I can say that from this distance. <laughs> and um, he, he, he's struggling, as is the government. And so you have this incoherence. But it's also, we're living through a regime shift. I mean, we had the US inflation number last night and bizarrely US equity markets rallied, that's to do with positioning, but that US inflation number was a kick in the guts for anyone wanting mm. to see lower inflation. Mm. Inflation is, is, is back. We don't really know how low inflation worked. It was kind of a social contract that people stopped raising prices, asking for wages and the central banks weave this magic story around it. And it turned out that maybe there was more alchemy than, than hard <laughs> reality. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so now inflation is back, um, services inflation is back, and wage inflation will inevitably follow. It's always a price-wage spiral mm -hmm. rather than a wage-price spiral. But with the oil price down and the shipping container costs down and a whole bunch of other sort of hard product costs down, is that not going to be enough to take that the edge off? Doesn't look like it. I mean, US goods prices are falling, um, but services inflation's on fire. Mm. And so that's also, again, you know, getting back to the original topic, the Bank of England, that's their problem as well. They face a genuine inflation problem and they face a genuine financial stability problem because their pension system is not resilient to higher interest mm. rates. But it's also totally, I mean, what is so extraordinary, and I, Bernard and I sort of have been talking about this on a couple of episodes because of this, you know, the, the Gordon Brown, as you recall, brought in Bank of England uh, independence in order to make the markets less nervous about a Labour government. And this is intervention that's been required for a Conservative government. And, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng just being called back from the IMF meeting urgently this today, um, presumably to have his ass handed to him in, in Downing Street. It, it's only, you couldn't, you couldn't make it up. No, I mean, no yes, it really, it yes, really is Prime Minister it. was more structured and organised in this government. Hmm. Yeah, no, and it looks like she's possibly going to do a reversal on the corporate tax tax cut. Who knows what else goes on? There's a lesson here for New Zealand, though, as we look to the next election. Yeah, that's excellent. What what is it, Rodney? You've got to run very conservative fiscal policies. Hmm. Talking of tax cuts is like so 2010. Hmm. Um, you know, we've got, and New Zealand faces particular challenges now that are kind of being exposed. You're talking about immigration, um, but you know, what's our growth strategy? How do we cope with this new volatility? In the 70s, we didn't cope very well. Mm. I mean, US inflation was under control by August 1982. It took us till July 91. Mm. You know, we don't want to waste another decade. So the Fed, with that hot inflation number last night, how high is it going to have to? 
squeeze things to make the pips squeak and for it all to go back down? And, and will the market be able to cope with it? Or is there a bunch of bombs waiting to go off inside the global financial system with a Fed funds rate over 5%? Well, the Fed lent, lent $6.5 billion last week to the Swiss National Bank through the swap. Mm. So, the, and supposedly that was for Credit Suisse. Oh, I was going to say, strange, yes. Yeah. <laughs> strange uh, 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 are emerging. Um, mm. the, the, it, um, so that's, I wondered about the, the bounce back in the, the shares in New York this morning. I wonder if people think it's going to get so bad there's going to have to be another bailout. So I better make sure I don't miss the next bounce. Yeah, well, we've been conditioned over a long period of time. And that's why we're living through a 1970s-style regime mm. shift. And um, I see Craig just posted a question about taxes that we need to rebalance the marginal rates. That's true, but we also... Because, you know, in an inflation, you have very... You get caught in these impossibly conflicting objectives. Um and at some point, the priority has to be to bring down the rate of inflation and fiscal policy has to help. Yeah, well, we're not going to get that from either side of, uh, uh, of politics in New Zealand. Um, just back on the, uh, the, the global e economy front, um, this weekend's an important one in China because of the, uh, um, the, the, the party congress in which um, we're told that uh, President Xi will get Crowned for a third term. What's could you? And you're you're um you've been in China a, a long time. Can you tell a, an audience of um, plebs like me uh, why the Congress is so important? Well, it's the difference between Russia and China. Russia has Putin. China has the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And Xi Jinping has risen to the top of the Chinese Communist Party, and he's taking it in directions that, you know, a lot of people would regard as ill-advised, um, back to more centralized leadership. But he's still subject to institutional constraints, and those play out through the Party Congress. So we'll know a lot more in a week and a bit. We don't know. You know, you wait for the Standing Committee to walk out onto the stage, and it's on <laughs> and check who's missing. <laughs> And you're just waiting. There's no announcement. And these seven blokes, because they're all blokes, or it could be nine, but I think it'll be seven, mm. walk out. And then you start frantically working out who's who and what where they are. And, and so that will give us the premier. We don't know who the next prime minister will be. Um, you know, there's a couple of candidates. Um, and we don't know, you know, what will the balance be? You you hope you end up with a more balanced where mm -hmm. Lika Chung stays on as number two in the party rather than retires. And you know, I would hope that Wang Young ends up as premier rather than who would, would, would that be would that be an indication that he that he might be set up to succeed, she? No, 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 there'll be no successes. This is the point. <laughs> this is a transit you shouldn't look for a successor in the yeah. standing committee. Um no, we can't think about successes. That's too 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 hard. And it's too far in the future because the reality is zero COVID is imposing an enormous cost on China, also on the region, and also New Zealand. Mm. You know, part of our economic struggles are connected to zero COVID. Um, Guangzhou. I was wondering about that, but so just let's just because I, I I want to ask you two. So just what what is China's contribution at the moment to low inflation? Because we've had you know historically the the cost of manufacturing over the last thirty years being dramatically reduced by by you know China becoming the workshop of the world, what's what's the Chinese role in our inflationary position at the moment? 
it, it's part of a global backdrop where we know have no longer falling falling prices but really mm. uh, inflation everywhere is the pricing systems are profoundly disturbed the labor markets are very disturbed you've got excess massive excess demand for labor um lack of labor supply mm. so we'll spend decades working out how this inflation happened um and, i think yeah okay. and, and just going back to she for a moment i mean it, it, what did you make of his recent corruption purge with some quite senior people being um being picked up in that again is, is that is that just a little nudge a nudge to the to the uh, opposition yeah it's, no it's not to the opposition there's there's no opposition as such. yes sorry it's I'm just a a hmm. it's just this is purging hmm. so you reduce you take out it's a great system if you're in his position anyone who's annoying you can pack off <laughs> um, and yeah and and now, I mean, once the Congress is finished, does this leave you more room to do some things like ease up on, on the COVID rules or change how he's dealing with the property market collapse? What do you no, think no, happens after? We, we had, a, you mentioned Michael Baker before, but we have a significant group in New Zealand that would have been, if we weren't a democracy with opinion polls, um, we would probably still be under zero COVID restrictions. You know, Wellington was quite happy to lock Auckland up for 107 days and forget about it. <laughs> yeah, there's um, a few people in Auckland who would. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's the uh, zero COVID. Uh, you get locked into a zero COVID mindset. And it's that old story about, you know, the farmer who left the gate open with the sheep and one sheep goes out and he thinks if he leaves the gate open, maybe it'll go back in and then two sheep go out. And so zero COVID, you go through this process, keep hoping <laughs> that you'll get it under control. I quite mm. like that anecdote, actually. I, I, I missed the sheepdog um, trials on New Zealand television on a Saturday evening, or whenever it was, Sunday evening, I think yeah. it was. That was must-see TV as a, mm. a nine-year-old. Um, and, and it was- Rodney, let me, before we bring in um, uh, Natalie to talk about, Natalia to talk okay. about um, uh, Ukraine and, and disinformation and so on, I just there's a, um, question I had for you on um, on China, and you you have occasionally accused me rather bluntly of being a bit naive about the, my... Absolutely. Or possi I possibly... By, I by every criticism. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, exactly. About <laughs> my, my, my belief that we have to engage with China. It was very interesting overnight, the uh, ASML, the Dutch, the Dutch um, yeah. uh, fabrication company, chip fabrication company, and a whole bunch of American companies announcing that they were stopping any cooperation at all with China at the moment uh, yeah. in the production of sophisticated chips. Yeah. I mean, that's going to both have a short-term effect in stopping some of the Chinese development, but it's also going to accelerate China's rush to try to do this itself, isn't it? In the whole, I mean, the, the sort of chip wars are such an interesting area because it includes Taiwan so much. Capitalism is an amazing thing. The incentive to produce the innovation, mm. um, <laughs> communism less so. So which one would you bet on? <laughs> uh, and so I just well, mind you, mind you, if you if you were to send the send the um, uh, people's army across across the straits of Taiwan, you would you would get rather a large um, communist uh, capitalist built uh, chip fabrication business, wouldn't you? You know, you but you'd have to get past the Russian army was stopped by ten American trucks with three blokes, yeah. basically the HIMARS. I mean, we we could go on for hours on this. We're getting off topic. But I, I think that, you know, what Ukraine has really shown the strength of U.S. technology mm. in mm. Terms of U.S. as a military state. And it's got an amazing technology that it's been using in kind of less developed settings. So we haven't seen it 
and setting. So China has a problem. And but I think fundamentally, this is a point that I've believed in is that China, they patronized us terribly. That's what New Zealand's wonderful at. We were just happy to be patronized away all day and talked down to. We'll take it. It's kind of been a dominion mm. and colony. We're quite happy to accept it. But that's what China's been doing to us. But they've also been doing it to the world and saying the East is rising, the West is declining. Okay, well, if we're declining, you don't need our stuff. <laughs> that's effectively what the US is yeah, saying. Yeah. But it means it's a different world for, for us. And I see that this week, uh, Penny Henare has put out the defense review terms of reference. And basically, um, we're starting to ask the question now of, you know, uh, is our army and our navy and we don't have an air force really. <laughs> uh, is it fit for purpose? Yes, we do. We've got five. Years? We've got five Hercules, and we're replacing. No, that. we've got a wonderful air force. We've got the five P8s, and each yeah. P8 can fly off five drones. Mm. Yeah, exactly. that's the new ones, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, um, but you know, uh, we still have a relatively low uh, defense spend to GDP in a world where this these tensions between China and yeah. the US are not going away. Should we be doing a lot more? We've got a lot to think about. We've gone through, my concern is we went through a shock with wool and then EEC in the 60s and 70s. So we've gone through these shocks, our world. And what was great about China was we could go back to our old model. Ag exports, mm. managing up to a country, we managed up, you know, we knew how to manage up to London, <laughs> we managed up to Beijing beautifully, we're good at that. <laughs> Um, We're excellent sucker uppers. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and so we, we, you know, it was great. And if China had stayed open and continued to engage with the world and been prepared to keep their system but engage with us on an equal basis, it would have been good. But they weren't. And now we have a problem. And and so we've got, mm. you know, I think we need to be really sober about the challenges we face over the next few years. Can it's I just say, Rodney, do not worry about digression on this on this podcast. It's it's our number one um, purpose is to is to uh, pretend to pretend to be polymaths. Yeah, you've got Natalia waiting to come on. We have, we have. Thank so. thank you very much, Rodney. Fantastic. Um, digression is a feature, not a bug, on the hood. <laughs> see you <laughs> soon, Rodney. Very wonderful good. to see you. Now, um, please welcome in today uh, Natalia Chabin, who is um, uh, an academic from University of Canterbury, who we've had on before to talk about uh, the Ukraine and was originally from Ukraine. Wonderful to have you again, Natalia. I hope you're well. And um, we wanted to talk about uh, what your what you've seen from your point of view as an expert looking at information warfare. You know, the, the information. Um, uh, environments, uh, what's going on between Ukraine and Russia and the rest of the world. What, what, what are you hearing from um, Ukraine about how people are feeling and, and also what's, what you're seeing in the info wars between Ukraine and Russia? Thank you, everyone. And again, thank you for inviting me to join you in the discussion. It's always a great pleasure. And the exchange of opinions is always very interesting. And I'm hoping to introduce some potentially new details because we are already um, in month eight of the war and um, we're far from being stale in that conflict. The events of the recent month demonstrated um, escalation, very serious escalation from the side of Russian Federation, um, an escalation which added uh, many new pieces of the puzzle 
to what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Of course, we're talking about partial mobilization, about annexation, about uh, explosions of the North Stream, about very belligerent rhetoric about nuclear threat. Um, and it's in this complex of things, and that all leads to something that happened on October the 10th and 11th and 12th. But the October the 10th was, of course, the, the, the tragic day because it was a massive missile attack, 83 missiles shot um, all over the territory of Ukraine, targeting civilians, targeting um, 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 you know, the provision of electricity. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so we have this. And um, on the one side, we have um, a lot of propaganda efforts on the side of the Russian Federation, sort of justifying why attacks on civilians could happen, why is it a correct way of moving, let's put Ukraine on its knees, let's put Ukraine back into the 18th century without electricity, water, sewage. On the other side, we do see um, a lot of, um, um, yeah, a lot of um, events or if it was events and information here, but also in real life happening um, from the West and from Ukrainian side. And there is a lot of media discussion about the response of the West and of Ukraine to this most serious Mm. escalation. So there's sort of a little bit of an introduction and I'm happy to deliberate about the response of the West, the UN, NATO, Rammstein, Burrell, Council of Europe, each one of these organizations came with very strong statements, yeah. very interesting development, and they attracted a lot of media attention in Europe. And, and if you are interested, I'm happy to talk about sort of latest developments and how Ukraine keeps winning the information war. Um, yeah, well, Natalia, one thing I wanted to ask you about, we, we got the appointment of um, General Armageddon, uh, Sorovkin, you know, and that that throwing 80, 82 or 83 cruise missiles and various, you know, uh, missiles at, at, at um, Ukraine and Ukraine cities, particularly civilian um, people uh, and, 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 inst- and institutions, seemed a very Surovkinish thing to do. And it seemed like a response in part to people like Ramzan Kadyrov uh, attacking the course, criticizing the course of the war, and he's changed his tune. To, to what extent do you think that Putin is having to respond to or address the sort of um, the the even further further to the right political class or political commentary class in um, in Russia? Well, of course, any political system has competing factions. And it seems that the, the appointment of Sorovkin and the, the scale of escalation and the cruel character of this escalation, specifically mm-hmm. against the civilians, which Sorovkin did against Aleppo and Syria, um, is indeed a political response to the criticisms which are coming from the right side of political continuum in the Russian Federation. Um, that sort of, you could see it as one piece of the puzzle. Uh, and of course, I think it was testing of the West. And what we see in response is actually something which is a very unusual, it's a historical moment. I'm not yeah. the turning point, one of the major turning points in the war of Ukraine. If you listen to many Ukrainian commentators, the, the big debate is, is it the end of the beginning of the war or is it the beginning of the end of war? But what is the turn, what is the turn Natalia? Because I, I mean, David's just pointed out in our chat and I, that, you know, this was potentially also a response to the to the blowing up of the of the Kerch Bridge. But 
one also would have to say that this is pre-planned. You know, you don't just get 80 missiles being, you know, the, the, it, it, not that it's a coincidence, but it was definitely part of their quiver. So what, what is the term? Um, there is sort of, you're absolutely right, and that's um, obviously adding to the discussion that there's there's still things to be discussed about the, the Kerch Bridge, the Crimean Bridge, who did what, which, which special forces or intelligence were involved. At the moment, Ukrainian government from the very beginning was very clear in stating that it was not um, Ukrainian um, operation and looking at who benefits from it. It's always mm -hmm. one way to look into that. But um, yes, you are absolutely right. The scale of the missile attack suggests that, and the nature of missiles involved suggests that, um, it, that you need more than one or two days of preparation. Mm -hmm. You also need to collect lots of intelligence because the, the, the strikes were targeting the, the infrastructure, the critical infrastructure um, as such, it's impossible to do in such a short period of time. So we're talking about the preplant and the, the bridge was used as the trigger for this situation. Again, history will tell us who did what. We have, at this point, lots of information not known. And why, so what you will have seen the rather extraordinary images from the Russian security uh, officials of the wrong truck or a different truck from the one that they said it was. You know, they've got very, it's, what's going on there that they, they, you know, this is not the first time. They also put out if you, a, a really ludicrous um, uh, passport picture of, of, of somebody that they suspected was the driver. And of course it was just a made up passport picture. The truck was a different truck from the one on the picture. I mean, why are they so bad at this, at putting all this together? Again, um, at this point, the pieces of information keep coming through, the story keeps changing, the new evidence appears, then there's suddenly eight or five individuals of Ukrainian origin with Ukrainian passports are suddenly arrested, suddenly there is a statement, yep, that's it, investigation is over. So, um, dot, 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 to be continued, you really cannot, um, at this at this point, the evidence is so fragmented, we don't know so much mm. that I will be careful about making any statements because we really don't know. And the story keeps changing again. again. Suddenly, Bulgaria, Georgia, Armenia are involved. Suddenly, they're not involved. Who is the truck driver? And the, the, yeah, we will, I think that will be one of those um, events which will need um, a thorough historical investigation. Do, so, do, you, do you feel, do you, just one second, but do, do you feel the same way about the Nord Stream attacks uh, on the on the gas pipelines, on. Natalia? Yeah. Well, the whole idea is to, Sorry, ben. Um, on one side, excuse me, um, on, on one side, the, um, it is very much clear that uh, there is an effort by the Russian Federation to present Ukraine as a terrorist mm. state. So bridge fits this narrative as well as um, as well as the um, um, yeah. So we having the, uh, the 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 murder of Dugina, the daughter mm. of um, uh, a philosopher, and so while the whole world is witnessing the different practice done by the Russian Federation, the narrative of Ukraine as a terrorist state is something which is. Um, yeah, um, what's coming through. And so we have to be careful about the fact that there is that narrative being created and mm. propagated and um, not only internally, but also externally. But I just wanted to very quickly say that with all these efforts, um, there was that uh, Global Soft Power Index 2022. And this is a Global Power Index, which looks into what sort of soft power you are. Um, New Zealand is quite high on it, mm. uh, but what is interesting about him that global perceptions of Ukraine have a massive shift, and mm. it is the result of Russian invasion. So the world can see very clearly, and um, just to quote you, fam familiarity increases by an extraordinary 44%. 
influence by 24%, reputation by 12%. And so and even indicators not related to war also see the increase. So the reputation of Ukraine, the, the, the image of Ukraine in the world, um, yes, you can you can talk about that we have um, an increase in, in, in impressive um, change. I apologize, I realized- Don't worry, don't worry, it's, no, no, it's the least of our problems, problems usually. Yeah, and, and Natalia- it's right. Natalia, I, I wanted to ask about the mood in Ukraine. Uh, 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 is there a united feeling? Do people think we just have to um, kick Russia completely out of Ukraine, back to the pre-2012 borders, including Crimea? Or is there any suggestion, you know, people saying maybe we need to negotiate? Um, no. So the attacks on the 10th of October, yes, they, they stressed people. I've talked to so many people. I spent two days and not being in touch with my friends, colleagues, and family. And sometimes it was impossible because they were hiding in metros. Sometimes they were hiding in basements. Uh, sometimes they didn't respond at all because their electric substation was down. So they nobody has landlines nowadays right so you couldn't reach it because there's no internet no and it's something to think about mm. actually deviation total deviation i've just listened to a very interesting presentation about how old um older guard of military in ukraine were a little bit suspicious about these new electronic internet tools it's not only about heimers it's also about skilled and networks of ukrainian army who are doing incredible things and Taiwan is learning because a small state can withstand a big army um, bit. Um, but the discussion went the other way. They said like, don't you think that the new generation actually is learning those old analog things, <laughs> the map, the yeah. landline phone, because we pack the <laughs> landline phone. And so it's actually generations are learning from each other. It's not, it's just, it's unfair to say, oh, the old guard is changing it. But the new guard is actually learning things uh, too. So the resolve, the so I talk to all the people who I talk to, yes, they're stressed, they don't like to be in dark homes and cold and in coats lying on bed waiting to run to the basement because they, you know, they know that no attacks are coming. But it's the resolution that really struck me that people are really not, there's even more determination that um, things, but it was very heartbreaking to see the bomb falling into the park, Shevchenko Park, right in front of historical yep. red building at the university. I took my research teams there. I ate in the restaurant there. I were two favorite museums there. So that there is nothing military about this. It's yeah. historical buildings, awesome museums, university, park, playground. And um, yeah, it, it is, it is. But and Natalia, how, how should we read what we've seen today from Emmanuel Macron, who of course kept open the connections to Putin for a long time, um, you know, was somewhat humiliated, I would say, by, by negotiating with him right up to the 24th of February and then trying to continue it afterwards. He said today that he couldn't imagine France responding in a nuclear, we nuclear way if, um, if if Russia goes ahead and use, uses some nuclear weapons or tactical nuclear weapons. But there is what, continuation to that. He yeah, said, what, is, what is this all about? Weapons, but he continued, right? He said with yeah. the... With the conventional weapons, France will support with all conventional weapons. And look what happens in Rammstein. Um, France gives. Mm. So you have to see sort of a bigger puzzle. Um, there are responsibilities which nuclear states carry with them. And we should be very clear Ukraine is not a nuclear state. Mm. 
Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons. So if there is a nuclear attack on Ukraine, the nuclear power state... Well, it literally, it literally gave them up. It literally gave them up in a joint agreement with NATO and Russia, didn't it? Yeah. You know? So if, but if we think at what Macron said, he said, but with conventional weapons, and then look the result of Rammstein 6, we don't know yet all the results, the negotiations are still going on. It's a massive in, so we have a massive input uh, of, um, of NATO weapons, but also France is among those who gives a lot to Ukraine now. So I think we have to be, it's sometimes it's a you know, political statements, but then there is a reality. But yeah, you're right about NATO, not only to Reznikov, um, the Minister of Defense of Ukraine, was there as a sort of de facto member. He he calls de facto member of NATO because if you think Ukrainian army went through training in the field, it's actually uh, tr using NATO weapons how other NATO states haven't used them um, in many ways. But there was also a statement that in the next 10 years, NATO wants to rebuild in Ukraine the military industry and mm. you would say oh 10 years it's such a long time but no it gives you the time frame before nobody would even imagine that mm. the west will support ukraine for 10 years and now we do that's yeah. the really interesting thing is that every time putin ramps up the attacks the west and ukraine seem even more resolved and strong to fight back which is the exact opposite of what he might have expected which is that we'd all shrivel up and and say oh this is too hard or too expensive and you can have that little ukraine we don't care actually now people are going no we probably turned a blind eye 10 years ago when we shouldn't have with crimea and yep. and eastern ukraine and now we're not going to do that again and it's uh it's fascinating to see the west which has been all about consumption and spending and you know the consumer for 30, 40 years, suddenly now realizes they have to join together and fight a new Cold mm. War. It's quite a thing. But, but very quickly to say that if you look what happens within this last couple of days, UN, 143 countries votes. Even Saudi Arabia, yeah. And Council of Europe, think about Council of Europe. It's a very important organization uniting more than the European Union countries, and they have it now in resolution. And so that means that certain countries, certain alliances will not happen. Certain contacts won't happen because there is a price. And if what Ukraine reminds everyone about the importance of international law, I think Ukraine is paying a huge price for this reminder. But mm. I think the importance of international law, law is now so painfully obvious for so many, well, you know, peaceful times, people may think, mm -hmm. but now it, it's, a, it's a massive reminder. And um, yes, Ukraine is um, Ukraine is part of that dialogue of or, or narrative. Again, I use the word narrative of. Um, Natalia, of I was really interested. To, yeah. Sorry, I was really interested today, Natalia. There was a quite, and you will have seen this, I'm sure, because it's your really your patch. You know, Zelensky has really risen, as we all know, has kind of risen to the occasion, but he's um, also recorded himself turning himself into a hologram today in a, in a studio in, um, in Kiev. And of course, that's led to the led to the suggestion in the conspiracy world that he, he's always been a hologram, that he isn't in fact, that he isn't in fact there. And, and he's, you know, he's been everywhere uh, after all of these attacks because he's now a hologram. I have to tell you that Ukrainian diplomacy, Ukrainian leadership is actually engaging in lots of in interesting, innovative forms of diplomacy. We all talked about virtual diplomacy of Zelensky, mm. how he appeared around the world um, talking to the parliaments. But we shouldn't forget that he is not only talking to policymakers, 
in the general public. He appeared in many rallies around the world, especially in the earlier stages of, of, the, of the aggression. But he also appears next to the, in front of stakeholders in New York Stock Exchange, you know, mm -hmm. how they ring the bell to open the trade. So the traders came to the floor, they were waiting for the bell to ring and suddenly the screen goes up and Zelensky greets them. These are the traders. These are people uh, who are pushing business practices forward and then Zelensky ring a bell. Or Zelensky comes to Grammys 2022 or he comes to um, Venice Film Festival or Cannes Film mm. Festival. These are the opinion makers. You will say, who cares, they entertain. No, he, he is from the entertainment background. He yeah. knows how mass media can influence opinions and it's standing ovation from these groups but the most recent of his innovations so in addition to what you have mentioned is a celebrity diplomacy he did talk to Sean Penn and Ben Stiller and Jessica Chastain face to face but the new one uh, I'm sure you've heard about Luke Skywalker the actor who plays Luke Skywalker who now hits the initiative charity initiative to collect money for drones, so drones against mm -hmm. evil empire. We're crossing several levels of fiction <laughs> and reality. And then there is a photograph of Zelensky talking to the actors through Zoom. But it's, I think this is something to keep in mind. And if you're interested, I'm happy to talk about Yelena Zelenska because uh, yeah. there's a, was this returning question about women in communicating Ukraine to the world. And it seems to be lots of male commentators, but this new secret weapon of Ukraine, Olena Zelenska. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, they're really- um, Well, she can travel too, can't she? You know, she's, she's been out. Yeah. Um, and what do people in Ukraine think of, uh, you know, um, the president and uh, Yelena Zelensky? Because we, we have this, no one really heard of him beforehand. Um, although now I've watched the um, the series that he he did with him as the president, <laughs> yeah, which is just like mind blowingly, you know. Whoa. Um, and uh, yet one more time, crossing the boundaries between uh, fiction. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, he and he's a. I mean, he's obviously a gifted um, comedian and entertainer, but and I understand. But don't forget the, that he was also the voice of Paddington Bear. <laughs> in Ukraine. Oh, is that right? Yeah. That's the first time. In, the, in the romantic comedies, he's a satirical commentator. He is yeah. the owner of a big entertainment empire in the past, which had everything from movies to cartoons to satirical shows to yeah. humorous TV shows to whatever you just yeah. name it. And, but as I understand it, before the war, he wasn't necessarily that popular with the public. Yeah, no, it he seemed... was. I mean, this is a little bit popular as who? As an actor, as a performer, as a president. He mm. got elected in a landslide election of 75%. Mm. He was, um, some, some, some people called him a populist, but then very quickly they realized that actually lots of his steps were in the, in, in the right direction. And when there was peace, there were some oversights, but you know, he is not a professional politician. There was this recent interview with Zelena Zelenska, and was a question to her asking, are you surprised um, that he came with all the qualities and suddenly, in the, and she's like, I'm surprised that you are surprised. I'm <laughs> always that he was like that. He never betrayed his Kavayan team, the Club of Marian Witty People student. He's a lawyer by um, education, but he was the captain of the improv team which was competing on the highest level in the former Soviet Union. And when he was invited to join a very lucrative position in that entertainment system, he said, but I have a team and they come with me. And they're like, what team? And he, he turned back a very, very lucrative position to, because he didn't want to betray a team. But speaking about uh, him now, people, Zelensky is 
um, really um, has an incredible weight, reputation, and respect in, in Ukrainian society. And um, before the war, it's a democratic society, different political voices, parliaments, you know, it's, it's normal, it's what you should expect. But in times of war, he he's really is one of the, those leaders. And his wife, as you, as you say, he doesn't travel, but she, she yeah. does. Yeah. And as you know, recently she went to the United States where he was invited to front the cover of the Vogue US magazine, where she appeared photographed by Amy Leibovitz, who's one of the leading fashion photographers in the world. And Elena sits on that, on that cover in a very masculine pose. She's wearing pants, she's wearing low heels, her legs are spread wide. She's hitting very aggressive sort of masculine pose. And so in Ukraine, lots of commentators, especially female commentators, uh, were critical of her saying not feminine. Mm -hmm. Wife of a president in America, in a fashion magazine, how does she look so feminine? Which caused a new flash mob, which was called Sit Like a Girl, where lots of young, and not only young women, professional women, models, officers, soldiers, pilots, teachers, nurses, set in the familiar pose, and opened a new debate within Ukraine about the role of women, how mm -hmm. the role of women should be revised, the stereotypes and things. And there is quite a strong female voice. And so Elena is sort of behind that. She went to the US Congress where she gave speech, where she said, usually president, what, president's wives are asking for money for charity. I'm asking money for weapons. Yeah, it's interesting. She's, she's, she's in a sense the, she's in a sense the Madame, Ch Madame Chiang Kai-shek of Ukraine, um, you know, in the same way that, that Chiang Kai-shek's, you know, wife became the, the voice of, um, She's of, a of the nationalists in China. Very she's, interesting. She's an educated professional woman who in peaceful times was the <laughs> author in his uh, entertainment empire. She was one of the writers. She wrote texts for actors on the stage. Mm. So she mm. is very well familiar. And finally, she went to the Queen's funeral and she met Kate v Middleton and the whole world discussed what they were wearing and which designers. Of course, Olena was wearing Ukrainian designers. And you think, who cares? The war is going on. No, you do. There is a group of people who do not Heimerses or helicopter who wears what and royalty and suddenly um, Ukraine is on their radars. So I'm talking about lots of innovations. Mm. Um, so just fine, just finally, Natalia. Um, before we let you go, thank you so much for your time. How do you feel about the future of Ukraine now and whether and when it could win? Mm. Well. Um, the victory will depend on the advances and victories of the Ukrainian army. So as Ukrainian, I'm obviously supporting um, my country and it's very difficult to predict the end of the war. We're going into winter, we're going into bad weather, but it will be for both sides. So the, it, there will be people dying. There will be more victims, civilians, soldiers, and this is very unfortunate, but um, yeah, hopefully we are seeing the beginning of the end. Thank Natalia, you so much. Natalia Chevin from the University of Canterbury. Thank you so much for being on The Hoon again. Lovely to see you. Nice to see you too. Thank you very Good much. Thank you. Bye. And um, on that hopeful note, Peter, we are uh, ending. We're coming towards an end. Well, two, two things we're going to end with, sure. I thought, Bernard. One was, one was you know, I, I, 
I'm not entirely sure I agree with your piece this week about uh, farming emissions. Although ah, yeah. yep. the work that you put into that, when I read it today, finally, rather than just having a glib response to your to your initials thing, was really impressive. The work you put into that. But I've been trying to get hold of a pair of um, pink. Uh, red band gumboots uh, as the Prime Minister wore, and they're completely unavailable now. I've, I've even considered driving as far as Hamilton to get them, but Wrightson's or one of the other farm shops in, um, or stock agent shops, you know, between 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 uh, ha uh, Hamilton and Fongaray, they're unavailable. Really? Yeah, well, mm. I, I, I went out to the farm with the, the PM, and Lynn was there taking photos <laughs> as well. And um, they were the shiniest gumboots I've ever seen. Yes, I thought possibly that might be the case. Hey, now, but so, so Bernard, I sent you a video before to, to be our skateboarding gold, which is really, mm. you know, and of course it's a metaphor because there's a couple of things happening in Downing Street, as you know, and I think we both laughed this week when the economist, economist um, said of Liz, Liz Truss's period so far that she'd had the uh, shelf life of a lettuce. <laughs> which I thought was rather good. But the video is of Larry the cat uh chasing a um fox an urban fox down downing street and and standing up to him you know That's how it. can we not win with pictures of both mr fox fantastic mr fox <laughs> and cats the cats that's right do you want to throw the link into the um the i chat did there i did before yes uh, well i'll do it again yeah you're, it's quite a way back isn't it um, yep it is way back. it's all right no 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 i will i will oh here we go yep yep Uh, to everyone but are we going to show are you going to show it to finish yeah i will try to show it yeah yeah uh, all right cool. off you go so thanks yeah, here we go no thank thank you it's been a um a lovely week and i'm really glad we had natalia she's fantastic oh she's lovely and also to to hear the detail about what's happening there yeah. let's let's yeah. end with larry the cat everyone let's uh quickly uh do the whole share screen thing and here's larry You go, Larry. Go, go. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if only he'd he'd chased out Boris Johnson like that. That would have been. Well, there's great. A, you know the whole thing is a metaphor, isn't it? You know. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Wonderful. Everything is a, everything since Brexit is a metaphor. I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> no, everyone. Um, have a fantastic uh, weekend and and hold in there. I've got another magnum opus coming on. And thanks, Bernard. I'll see you when you walk down the hall. <laughs> and yeah see you later catch you later right. bye, -bye. thank you everybody bye, -bye.